Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of 10 of those publishing company. And we are reading Chapter 23, Settling Down in England. In February 1980, Farnham, age 62, died. He had undergone heart surgery from which he was recovering. He succumbed to a strange, rare virus, probably injected through a blood transfusion. He was admitted back into the hospital and lingered semi-conscious for some days. He seemed to remember those things far off in our childhood, and on the last night, as I sat beside him, we kept watching turn. We sang the old Swiss hymns together that we had learned in the little meeting room in Rosmayar. He had known before the operation that he was going to die, although no one else expected it, and he had left specific instructions for his funeral. Over the years, he had had worked at... Addenbrook's Hospital as an eye consultant. He had become increasingly burdened for the large community there. He and the chaplain had started a weekly lunchtime prayer meeting in the chapel, and it grew rapidly. It was open to all, and it was good to see consultants, nurses, cleaners, porters standing side by side, interceding for the hospital. And the prayers were answered. During the time he was there, Gideon Bibles were placed by every bed, and the chapel services started being relayed to the wards. Farnham wanted that work to go on. In the last letter to his wife, he asked that his funeral service might be held in the, the hospital chapel during the dinner hour so that all might come, and to last only half an hour so that all might have time to eat. There were so many with whom he talked and prayed, and all was done as he requested. His old friend Maurice Wood preached, and the chapel was packed out, hospital staff standing in place four deep around the walls. He had asked that the gospel should be clearly preached, and he wanted it to be a joyful occasion. No black hats and no black scarves, he said. He was rather vague as to what women usually wear at a funeral. It was strange how grief blurred into a kind of gray mist, with certain incidents unforgettably clear. I remember wandering down to the, into the chapel at 2 a.m. and having that certainty that Farnham was going to be healed and the nightingale singing in the lane that left, led to the hospital and the bitterness of that Friday afternoon as we stood and sang round the grave. I remember motoring home alone after the funeral and feeling that a large part of me had died and thinking, I never really knew what grief was before. And on top of the personal grief was the grief of the widow and the six children. I found no comfort. It was three years later when my brother John died that that comfort was given. On the first Sunday after his death from cancer and hospice, I felt I could not face a church service. The hymns were too poignant. I went to the crackly woods and where the August bracken was waist-high and the light thinned by the thickness of the green foliage. And here, very clearly, God seemed to speak. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. It was so clear that I felt I could speak too, as in a conversation. How shall I realize this special coming, I asked. And there flashed into my mind the words of an old hymn that I had learned in my childhood, but had only ever sung in Arabic. I shall know him, I shall know him, by the prints of the nails in his hands. And I realized that in suffering we stand in common ground with him. We share a mutual experience. St. Paul even prayed for that, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. It was good for me that I moved house the next month that Farnham died in 1980. It gave me a lot to think about. John had been diagnosed as having cancer and was weakening rapidly, 
And now I knew that he, too, uh, would soon be giving up his practice. This meant the whole family moving to a smaller house in the same district and Auntie and I finding our own accommodation. I had joined a friendly little evangelical church on a country estate and had decided to go and live in the area. It was difficult to leave Auntie and to go house hunting, and I had prayed that somehow the right house would be chosen for me. The second one I went to see, a council house five minutes from the church, was exactly what I wanted, and with the money from the house left to me by my great aunt, it was at a price I could afford. But I had not bargained for the extras. I had never heard of key money, some 200 pounds, nor had I reckoned on a leaking boiler, wiring that had not been checked for 30 years, and a central heating system that had to be installed again by scratch. By the time I settled in, it was about 1,700 pounds over what I had reckoned. It was February, and no royalty money would be arriving until June. I was in no danger of starving. My brothers would have helped me if I'd asked them. But I did pray about the matter, and perhaps because it was a time of great sadness, the answer was instant and direct. A day or two later, I received a letter from a lawyer in Lake District. He said he'd been looking for me for a year, and could I prove my identity? On doing so, a second letter arrived, saying that an old lady had died a year previously. She had liked something I had written, and had left me a legacy of about 1,800 pounds. It eventually turned out to be 2,000 pounds. Why had they searched for a year? My name was uncommon. The name of the publishing firm was printed in the book. I can only think that God held it back. My times are in thy hands, said David. Had it come to me earlier, I might have felt no need for it and used it for other purposes. I loved my new home, and Auntie, who had never lived in a small house before, adapted well. It was partly furnished by a wonderful supply from the church and where the fellowship was warm and alive with lots of offers of help. Two of the church leaders even donned overalls and between them painted the whole inside of the house. The neighbors were kind and welcoming, and a number of them have become close friends. People dropped in. Children knocked at the door. We had a new garage built to replace the rather ramshackled one in the back garden, and this became the snooker room, which had brought in many young people. The boys tended to arrive at the front door, say, snooker, and shoot through the back without a glance, glance in our direction, although in the winter I seized them by their coat collars and made them wipe their feet. We liked to be noticed, however, and were pleased out of all proportion when one young lad, after weeks of treating us like two pieces of furniture, stopped himself suddenly with a jerk as he careened around through the kitchen door and shouted over his shoulder, I like coming here. It's a dead nice house. Soon after moving in, we had a rather solid conservatory built onto the back of the house, which served as a playroom and also a guest room when needed. Friends and family often visit, as do friends from Lebanon and Morocco and elsewhere. So we began to know students at Walrick University, especially foreign ones, who were often lonely and wanting to visit an English home. These were happy years, and growing old did not seem difficult. I found new sources and ideas for writing, too. The enormous number of broken homes and bewildered children prompted me to write Where the River Begins. The prevalent interest in occultism among young teachers Teenagers prompted the victor, a story based in Tyre in Lebanon in the time of Christ. Hazel arrived from Lebanon in 1981, having reached a retiring age. She came just as I had to go into the hospital for back surgery on my cervical vertebra. I had been in a lot of pain for three weeks and the night before the operation, as I packed for Andy to move up to my sister-in-law's home. I was feeling at the end of my tether. 
Suddenly the rail on the wardrobe where all Auntie's clothes were hanging broke, depositing everything in a heap at the bottom of the cupboard. I tried as I could to conceal it. Auntie saw I was unduly distressed. She could not really judge what was happening, and I knew I would have to pick up the clothes, and stooping was acutely painful. I walked downstairs in a very low spirit, a knock at the front door. Young Alan Parker from the church stood there, shy and slightly embarrassed. I was driving home, he said. I was early leaving work, and I suddenly had a feeling you might be needing help. I just refrained from hugging him and hurried him upstairs. In about ten minutes, the bar was mended and the clothes neatly hung. Hazel arrived about two days after my operation. I was being visited simultaneously by a prince of the royal family of Ethiopia and a garage man. I would have been delighted to see either and talk about Ethiopian politics or cars and have a chat, but I could think of absolutely no subject of common interest. They sat one each side of me. My neck being in a thick collar, I could dress only one by turning my neck my back on the other, and I felt miserable. Suddenly, Hazel appeared in the doorway, brimming, brimming with enthusiasm and solutions for all problems. She grasped the situation immediately and took my guest off in turn for cups of tea downstairs, leaving me free to roll on my side and enjoy the other guest, foreshadowing things for the future. She has been solving our problems ever since with a cheerful common sense and usually refuses to recognize that a problem exists. As she says, it's a great life. If you don't, weaken. I quite enjoyed my ten days in hospital, but I felt anxious about my hands. They were so weak as to be almost paralyzed. I could not hold a pen or eat with a knife or fork, and no one seemed to know why or be able to help tell me if it would pass. After I got home, in spite of the physiotherapy, there was little improvement, and I began to think more deeply about the subject of healing through prayer. I had not prayed to be miraculously healed of my neck pain. I believed that under God the surgeon would heal me, and he did. As the days passed in the ward, I began to realize what a tragedy it would be if Christians were all healed and never went to hospital. People are so vulnerable in hospitals and willing to talk. And how good if there was a sick Christian in every ward. But my hands seemed different. <clears throat> they affected my nursing and my writing. And had the weakness persisted, Hazel would have had to give up her deputation program and stay at home with Auntie. I asked three of the elders of the church to come and lay hands on me and pray for healing. They came at midday on Sunday. Although nothing happened immediately, by evening I found I could hold a pen and write legibly, and the next morning I opened the door. After about 24 hours, my hands had regained their normal strength. If me, then why not John, who is fast going downhill, his cancer apparently spreading? Everything was happening in the family a planned wedding, an expected baby, a GCSE exam. Although he loved and trusted the Lord, he could not accept the thought of leaving them all. Could there by prayer and faith be healing for him? It seemed so needed. We went that year as a family to the first Spring Harvest Conference at Preston. John was well enough to attend some of the meetings. The teaching was clear and definite. If we prayed God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we could pray with assurance for self for healing. For there is no cancer or disability in heaven. Sickness is not God's will. John asked for prayer, and the leaders were caring and loving beyond all our expectations. In a conference specially geared to the young, where individual ministry was going on all day and all night, 
the whole team and several of the wives gathered to pray for John. His wife and daughter were also present. As healing was claimed for him, we left spring harvest full of hope and expectation. John died within four months, but something happened. He entered into a peace and acceptance of God's will for him that was almost palpable. He often spent the day in our house as he grew weaker. Towards the end, I helped Gwen, my devoted sister-in-law, of some of the night nursing, and always there was that new sense of peace of God that passes understanding and silences the questioning. I, too, cease to question. Faith is not being sure that you're going to get well. Faith in the gospel was a hand stretched out to make contact with Jesus, and then something always happened. Just as in the gospels, no two healings ever took place in quite the same way. So Christ reserves the right to touch where he in his love sees best. There are degrees of faith, little faith. Faith is a grain of mustard seed. Great faith and the quality of that faith may well have affected the peace of the mind of the petitioner, but it could not affect the Lord's response. Trembling Peter sinking in the waves, the frightened woman who touched the hem of his garment, were held up and healed as certainly as a confident centurion. Answer to our prayer may come in our body, our mind, our spirit, our circumstances, or in blessing, sometimes long delayed, or even on the other side of death. And usually in our sorrow, we fail to think much about that amazing final healing. It came home to me forcibly in Rwanda when I visited the island where the old lepers, too disfigured and too disabled to go back to their villages, were cared for for the rest of their lives. I was told that when a leper died, there was no thought of sorrow. The other lepers would dig his grave by the shore of the lake and prepare a feast. At sunset, they would gather to eat and drink, and all that night they would sing and dance around the graves, celebrating and sharing the joy of a leper in his new resurrected body, free from pain and weakness and disfigurement. I remember thinking, this is the real right response to a Christian death. But I am glad that Jesus wept. He knows it is almost impossible at first to see through the mist of sorrow to the glory beyond. We just have to believe it's there. John died in 1983, and nine months later, in 1984, Auntie died. She was very weary and ready to go. She was stone deaf and could no longer read much. It was difficult to cheer her. During those last years of her life, her great concern was for the grandchildren of the Emperor of Ethiopia five dearly loved girls whose guardians she had been during the years that they and other Ethiopians were at Clarendon. When the revolution broke out, they were all imprisoned without trial, together with their mother and other, and other women of the royal family in a small room. Miss Swain thought about them, prayed for them, and worked tirelessly on their behalf, sending herself and encouraging others to send all the supplies and help possible through a neutral agency. Sadly, she died before they were released after 14 years in prison. But prayer for them was answered. In spite of all they had been through, their courage and unshakable faith in God have been a wonderful witness to his power to keep in all circumstances. I wonder whether from heaven Miss Swain was allowed to watch her memorial service in London and rejoice when hundreds of her old students gathered to give thanks for her life and one after another testified to her love and influence on their childhood and young womanhood. It was a beautiful service. A pageant of praise. And on next time we will read chapter 24, The Refugee Camp. 
I love you. I'm praying for you, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.